Welcome to the China Smart State podcast, produced by the Leiden Asia Center in association with the DigiChina project at Stanford University. This project is all about the digital transformation of China in all its complexity and how it affects the politics, economy, and society of this rapidly emerging cyber power. I am Roger Kramers, your host. My co-host today is Linda van der Horst. Hi, Roger. Delighted to be here. Linda wears many hats. By day, she works for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but she's also writing a PhD on the digital Silk Road. Obviously, anything Linda says is her personal view and does not represent the Dutch government. And it's an absolute pleasure to talk today to two distinguished colleagues and old friends, Nigel Inkster and Camino Kavanagh. Camino wears many hats. She is, amongst others, a visiting researcher at King's College London, where she finished her PhD in 2015. More specific to our topics today, she has acted as a member of the UN advisory support team to the chairs of two recent UN negotiation processes related to cyber and international security, the UN Open-Ended Working Group and the Group of Governmental Experts. Nigel Inkster has a background in China studies. He spent the larger part of his career working in British intelligence, and then moved to IISS, where he is now a senior advisor on cyber in China. He is the author of two books, China Cyber Power, and most recently, The Great Decoupling, which discusses the growing tensions between the US and China on technology issues. There has been a big question in the global cyber debate, which isn't about companies or about technology, but about states. What is it that state governments can do in cyberspace? What is it that they can do to each other? What is it that they can do to companies or to the infrastructure or to uh, individuals? And that has been a debate that has been raging for at least the past two decades, amongst others, and perhaps most prominently, in the United Nations. China, as a relative latecomer to the digital sphere, has been trying to achieve an increasingly strong position in this international sphere, uh, as evidenced by its ambition to become a great cyber power. So what we're going to discuss today is... How does China try to achieve this great power status in the diplomatic sphere? And how does the existing or the pre-existing diplomatic community respond to China's greater ambitions and capabilities? So let's start with Camino. Camino, could you perhaps give us a, a, a basic idea of what cyber diplomacy is? What is it about? What problems does it try to solve? And how does it try to do so? Hi, Rocky. Thank you so much uh, uh, for the invitation to be here today. Um, but maybe starting with the cyber diplomacy de definition, it's been defined as the use of diplomatic resources and the performance of diplomatic functions to secure national interests and often common goals with regard to cyberspace. Um, regarding the focus within the UN, which you, you referred to, the work has been taking place uh, within the United Nations, especially its first committee on international security and disarmament, disarmament point that's very important, um, to shape norms of responsible behavior uh, by states since, uh, well, the, the first discussions commenced back in 1998, uh, following a resolution um, uh, tabled by, by Russia, uh, the Russian Federation. And that evolved, that discussion uh, initially was complicated. It evolved into a, uh, the establishment of the first group of governmental experts, commonly referred to as a GGE, um, in 2009, um, which uh, produced a, um, a first report in 2010. That first report um, was very important because it recognized 
states as additional actors in the malicious use of ICT. It recommended the need for confidence and cooperative measures to ensure stability of the ICT environment. Uh, it also highlights in particular uh, areas of transnational concern, including the risk of misperception resulting from a lack of shared understanding regarding international norms pertaining to state uses of ICT, which could affect crisis management in the, in the event of major incidents. It also recommended needs, a need for measure, or measures to enhance cooperation and to ensure best practices, manage incidents, build confidence, reduce risk, and enhance transparency and stability. Uh, and finally, it also in, uh, emphasized the importance of collaboration among states and between states, the private sector and civil society to improve uh, security for international cooperation to be effective and the need for cooperative action and, and mechanisms. So this provided the basis for the work that would come then in 2013. Uh, a, a very important uh, report uh, that emerged from a group, another group of governmental experts that ran from 2012 to 2013. Uh, and the, the progress made in 2013 was very notable with regard to international law, because the group agreed that the UN Charter and other international law, including human rights, applied to state uses of ICT. Uh, and began an, an, an initial discussion on, on non-binding uh, voluntary norms. The, uh, there was a, an entire section of the report dedica dedicated to recommendations on confidence building measures and the exchange of information uh, as in 2010, and also uh, a new reference to the global nature of challenges and the importance of capacity building uh, to address those challenges since not all states have, have the same capacities evidently. So basically by... Um by agreeing that international law applied to this domain, they laid a very important foundation, right? So that, that was the milestone you're talking about in that respect. Yes, a milestone that was in 2015 and, 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 and built upon in much more detail in 2015 and in the reports that followed. And so what we have is we have a diplomatic process that starts in the early 2000s at a point in time where China has only recently been connected to the Internet. And I think we can safely say that China is a far less um, effective or a far less powerful player in cyberspace uh, at that point uh, than it is now. Also in its foreign policy, China at that point is still very much in the hide and bide mode where it's since then, it's switched to this idea that it wants greater discursive power in cyberspace. So we see an evolution there. Nigel, what do you think that the Chinese government, when it looks at this cyber diplomatic landscape, as it tries to get into it, what does it see? What does it try to achieve there? What are its objectives? But also, what are the things that it wants to, that it wants to get rid of or that it wants to avoid? Well, thanks very much for inviting me to take part in this podcast to start with. It's a great pleasure to be with uh, you know, respected colleagues. Um, yeah, when China first came to this in the, in the early 2000s, as you said, it was in a much weaker position that it has since uh, become you know, totally dependent more or less on U US technology to get started on the internet um, and, and operating from uh, a very low base. I, mean, I think there are two aspects to um, global cyber diplomacy, and Camino has talked about one of them, which is the cyber security dimension. 
and there, you know, I think you know, China, uh, from the outset, was very seized of the potential vulnerabilities that cyberspace posed, uh, both by virtue of its dependence on American technology, but also um, from um, its concerns that um, internet-generated content uh, could prove subversive of the Chinese Communist Party's dominant narrative. So from the outset, information control were, 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 was a dominant feature of, of, of Chinese concerns. Um, and China, from, from pretty much from the outset, w w was concerned to erode uh, what it saw as the United States' massive first-mover advantage in this domain, um, and also to create circumstances more propitious for its interests. Um, the dominant form of governance of the cyber domain has been characterized as the, the multi-stakeholder model, in which lots of different interest groups are all represented um, none um, of them predominant. You know, so, so governments are part of the multi-stakeholder landscape, but are not currently accorded you know, a primary uh, role um, in uh, internet management. And this is something that China wants to change. From the outset, the first sort of major uh, gathering on uh, global internet governance, the World Summit on um, the World Summit on the Information Society. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, World Summit on the Information Society. Sorry, uh, China at that point was arguing vociferously for um, a different system of governance, which was top-down, uh, government-led, um, and also um, um, a, a system that respected um, the different uh, concerns of sovereign states and effectively afforded states the right to, you know, internationally recognized right to control the content that transited their sovereign uh, networks. And that has been a consistent feature of Chinese um, um, diplomatic advocacy ever since, the promotion of this concept of cyber sovereignty. Uh, and what China really wants to get to is a situation in which, um, you know, other states do take account of and enforce China's concerns about what information should um, uh, should reach um, their, their population. So that, you know, that, that, that is an important and uh, enduring um, objective. And the other thing is that China has been aspiring from an early stage to replace the multilateral sorry, the multi-stakeholder system of governance which with what they call a multilateral system in which uh, governments have uh, the priority. Basically, you know, what China envisages as a top-down system driven by states under the aegis of the United Nations. Um, and we've seen this even extend to the question of internet architecture when in uh, 2019, I think it was, um, China proposed at a meeting in the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, um, this uh, new internet protocol, in effect, a re-engineering of the internet um, as a top-down government-led construct. So that, in a nutshell, is what China is about. That's what they want to achieve, and they've been pretty consistent in pursuing that. Thank you very much, Nigel. Now, turning back to Camino, Nigel describes to us a country that is increasingly 
powerful, increasingly ambitious, that is coming into this uh, UN diplomatic structure. How do the other members of that structure respond? How do they try and either engage with China or respond to China? Uh, how does that break down? Well, I think uh, it's very evident in the UN processes that I refer to uh, relevant to international security uh, that China has been a major player since um, since the early days and that its role uh, in both the open-ended working group and uh, and the, the GGE was 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 critical. Um, as a as a member of the P5 within the UN, it does have already quite a bit of power. Um, even if that is not, um, even if these were GA processes. Um, the, the, the engagement of China uh, in cyber diplomatic activities, I think, um, uh, has been very interesting if you look at it from a track two perspective. Uh, we've discussed this in Nigel Nurgoffier, um, and especially those track two initiatives that took place in the period, let's say, between 2009 and 2016, when there was quite a bit of activity in preparation for the multilateral processes, but also processes relevant to confidence building and, norm, and, and norms uh, at the regional level. So there was quite a bit of engagement um, uh, in the US, in Europe, uh, and, uh, and elsewhere uh, with, with different bodies directly or indirectly connected to um, the, the, the Chinese governmental structure. Uh, and um, I think these provided a very uh, important um, learning uh, process for um, those that were engaging with uh, Chinese experts uh, in, during that period. Whether, that, um, whether the current environment uh, is conducive to the same type of engagement at that, um, at that uh, secondary level is... is I think uh, currently being explored, but it's not very clear at the moment, uh, because evidently China ha is in a very different position, um, and uh, international the international environment is quite different to what, to what it was um, five, uh, six years ago. Has China stepped up its engagement with uh, third countries in, uh, in let's say, Indo-Pacific or Africa uh, in the cyber diplomatic space? In the cyber diplomatic space, it's it's not as clear um, operationally, technically. Yes, um, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's evident. Uh, um, Nigel talks about this in his book, uh, which I think is uh, very recommended. I highly recommend it for, uh, for reading. Diplomatically, um, I think like our own countries are forging new um, new alliances or new coalitions, etc. Um, I think it uh, is only to be expected that um, China will do the same um, and other countries will do the same. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So indeed, what we're, what we're seeing is that, or, or what you're saying, Camino, rather, is that the international situation certainly has changed. To what extent, Nigel, then have, has the Chinese approach changed or have its tactics changed? Is it now using a different diplomatic style or uh, or diplomatic tone or dip than it did maybe five or ten years ago? Right. Well, I think the first thing to say about China is that um, you know, an important part of its overall uh, strategy here is to create facts on the ground. And it has done this through uh, its uh, national champions, companies like Huawei, 
um, and you know the, the the digital Silk Road, uh, which involves China providing uh, states with uh, fairly comprehensive um, cyber capabilities, including the same cyber cap uh, surveillance capabilities that China itself has, and that I think helps create uh, coalitions. Um, particularly in the developing world, that are inherently, instinctively more um, sympathetic to China's general approach. Uh, and so, although China, I think, is not having much um, traction um, amongst um, the liberal democracies of the developed world, China is having considerable traction in the developing world, which numerically, of course, is... is uh, um, more significant. So that, I think, is um, the first point. I think... You Can I quickly uh, uh, cling yes. on to that? Because I was just wondering, um, what is then the appeal for like a country like, let's say, uh, South Africa uh, to... Uh, to um, uh, in the message that China is sending uh, to the developing well, world? Well, I think two things, twofold. I think that um, th um, recent... Um, uh, governments in South Africa, perhaps less uh, with the current one, but in the past, have been instinctively more authoritarian in their general uh, approach uh, to government, given their history, unsurprisingly, very je jealous of considerations of, uh, of, of state sovereignty. So from, that, uh, the, uh, from those perspectives, I think uh, South Africa is instinctively uh, sympathetic uh, to, to, to the Chinese position. I think we sometimes forget in the West just what a long shadow our history of uh, colonization has had and continues to have. It may be more nebulous in the way that it presents, but it does shape uh, perceptions in the developing world. And China you know, uh, makes much play of the fact that it's never had this history of colonization and exploitation, etc., etc. And, and that you know, um, lends it uh, a degree of you know, authority when, when, when talking to countries uh, like South Africa. But I, you know, I go back to the point that uh, um, the, the, the key difference that China makes is actually providing equipment, helping uh, nations get online, which we in the West have notably failed to do. Now then, if we can sort of take one example of a tactic that China seems to be deploying fairly regularly, and that's having sort of very uh, ambitious policy documents. We've seen this, for instance, in the context of the um, the Wujian World Internet Conference, where you know one where China wanted a, a sort of a co comprehensive new agenda for cyber governance. Last year, it launched the Global Initiative on Data Security, which is again a sort of manifesto type document for how it would like to see the internet being governed uh, globally. How are we to understand, Nigel, a document like this? What does China mean to achieve what with having these uh, agendas? Is it playing for a domestic audience? Is it playing to this developed world? Uh, how do we need to understand this as a diplomatic yeah. tactic? Well, I think that it's a continuation of China's um, fairly consistent approach, which is um, an attempt to get institutionalized in some form through treaty or other international agreements, uh, arrangements that suit China's um, 
domestic interests uh, and concerns. And I think you know, the, 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 this, this new uh, proposal that Wang Yi, the foreign minister, came up with last year is, you know, is very typical of that. I mean, it's very ironic because this uh, proposal contains um, statements, for example, that no, no uh, state should um, you know, uh, illegally harvest uh, personal data of uh, other states. Um, and you know, uh, it's ironic because China is undoubtedly you know, the uh, worst offender in this regard. I mean, we know that China has, you know, for some years now, been harvesting uh, the data of U.S. Uh, citizens uh, to the point where they've probably got uh, significant personal data on every U.S. citizen stored in, you know, sort of, so to speak, digital warehouses around the country and exploited for for various. Uh, purposes, but China's you know also concerned. You know what wh what China's real concern is, um, is you know in, in areas like um, data storage to to get internationally accepted the idea that uh, data generated in a particular country must be stored in that country and can't be repatriated. Um, uh, except with permission. And what this speaks to is the fact that China is still very dependent on foreign technology, foreign companies um, who are caught um, in a dilemma at the moment operating in China. China insists that they store um, um, data locally. Um, well, they're um, the governments of the countries in which these companies are incorporated often uh, expects this data to be stored, you know, back at base, so to speak. And you know, we're seeing foreign companies operating in China now, to increasingly torn between Chinese uh, requirements, laws, and provisions, and the laws of the com states in which they're incorporated. Um, to the point where some com uh, companies that China would like to be operating in China may actually have to decide that it's more trouble than it's worth. And this is a situation China wants to avoid. Thank you, Nigel. Camino, when you look at it from the perspective of the United Nations as an organization, when China launches a fairly unilateral initiative like the Global Initiative on Data Security, how does that land within an institution like the UN? Uh, does it have potential to influence discussions? How do other global players perceive it? Um, how, how does that become part of the discussions that are ongoing? I think, Rorier, if you look at many of China's submissions to the open-ended working group, which are publicly available on the uh, UN Office for Disarmament Affairs website, um, you'll notice that China put forward many of its ideas um, uh, re relating to the to the data initiative um, uh, in those, but it also raised some very very valid concerns about data security, um, including those that um, that link to I think there are there are elements of some of the existing norms that are brought up uh, within these um, uh, within within the framework of the of the of the existing norms that are linked in some degree at times to elements of of its initiative. What's interesting, um, I think, there evidently is the difference between how China views ownership of data, uh, which is very, very different to how many other countries view it. And that's likely where the, the biggest problem will emerge um, when, when it formally um, uh, presents its, its, uh, its initiative. I know it's presented in different fora and it has 
presented elements of it in, in the different processes. Um, but um, if it ever comes to present it in the form of uh, something stronger, then um, that will likely be the, 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 stronger point, the stronger point. And it links very much to what Nigel discussed about content versus infrastructure and the whole sovereignty-related dis discussion over sovereignty and, um, and jurisdiction relating to infrastructure um, uh, as already um, uh, included in the 2015 report uh, of the group of governmental experts endorsed by the open-ended working group and then further explored in the in the in the current uh, the, the latest GG report at at the very fundamental level obviously it comes down to two different uh, sort of opposing views namely on the one hand uh, a more state-centered view on uh, internet and technology governance and on the other hand uh, a more individual centered approach to um, internet and technology governance uh, how do you see any progress for uh, engagement uh, in, in those two camps in the coming years evidently dialogue is critical and it's a, a meta norm of diplomacy uh, without dialogue it's very very difficult to reconcile positions i think those positions will will be very very difficult to reconcile um, but I think understanding um, uh, understanding the different positions and interests, I, I think we all have a clear idea what they are, but trying to problem solve um, uh, requires a lot more engagement than we currently have, not only at the multilateral level, but regionally, um, and also through the forms of secondary diplomacy that I referred to earlier. Um, it's not very clear that those discussions are taking place um, on these specific issues at the moment. Um, but I think uh, we'll be, I'm talking mainly about the international security environment, but there are a lot more discussions uh, under, uh, underway um, from an internet governance perspective. And also there are, uh, there are very clear trade related issues here um, and that, uh, that require discussion. Um, but uh, Nigel, over to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, you know th this is going to be very problematic. Uh, one of my fellow commissioners on the Global Commission uh, for the Stability of Cyberspace, which incidentally was generously funded by the Dutch government, <laughs> thank you very much for that, um, made uh, has likened the internet to uh, the rainforest, a complex, uh, interdependent uh, ecosystem that is simply not susceptible to control from one central point and this basic proposition has been stated and you know, you know accepted by by the united nations uh, for for some time to come but of course this this reality and it is a reality um, runs up against uh, the imperative of a country like China for uh, control um, at all levels. And you know, my, my sense is that um, the, the best we can probably hope for here is some sort of border protocol between two divergent visions of the internet, uh, a US-led one and, 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 and a China uh, led one, um, and 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 I think the best we can hope for is you know so, some agreement on on mechanisms of basic interoperability. I've, I'd be very surprised if we get much further than that. So that would be a splinter net. Um, might I also add here that it's very difficult to reconcile many of these tensions um, 
especially when the underlying architecture remains so insecure. And I think being able to emphasize that element where there is agreement that um, uh, security by design, everything else um, in terms of software and hardware um, uh, needs to, 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 I think the focus needs to increase it. And evidently the current situation that we're, we're, we're living through in, in relation to ransomware goes back to that very, very element. And without that emphasis, we're always going to end up with these very diverging views where it's very difficult to reconcile. No, and it seems to me that one of the one of the problems that we're facing in this particular sphere is that most diplomatic negotiations or trade negotiations is about finding spaces for convergence where there is a status quo of difference. Whereas what we're seeing in the technological sphere is that there is a status quo of a high degree of integration that governments, particularly certainly China, but to a certain degree also European governments would like to move away from. And so it's it's this interesting exercise of unscrambling an omelet almost, which is uh, which is going to be going to be very challenging. But then if I might tease uh, if uh, if I might tease your brains on where are we going in the next 5 years or so? What are things that we can expect to happen or certainly not to happen? What counts as success in this sphere? Well, I think the, the first point to make is that the reality of the global internet um, is a domain that is characterized by constant contestation at a level below um, the threshold of armed conflict. You know that that is the reality. You know states, um, you know, and you know non-state uh, actors uh, are knocking all kinds of hell out of each other. You know, day in and 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 day out, and that is the reality. And it speaks to Camino's point about the inherent insecurity of the internet as we currently have it. I mean, you, um, you know, we we have an internet that is in its present form essentially uh, unsecurable, but at the same time surprisingly resilient, as we've seen over the last eighteen months, um, uh, as it's responded and risen to um, increasing demands imposed by the the global pandemic, so that's uh, um, you know the, the 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 reality, and I'm I'm not sure that that is going to change, uh, absent significant uh, technological developments, which um, you know may may or may not uh, be realised. And I'm thinking here like you know, about things like quantum computing that could fundamentally uh, alter you know, um, considerations of security. So I don't think that's going to change. I think what we're seeing um, uh, at the moment, um, um, Camino mentioned ransomware, and this is becoming a particular problem, but it's not ransomware just by um, disordered um, and fragmented criminal groups. It is ransomware that is being conducted um, under, the e uh, under the aegis and protection of states who are using these attacks to reinforce one of their fundamental points about internet, uh, about uh, cyber um, governance and cyber diplomacy, which is that absent uh, rigorous top-down government intervention, the internet is going to be a lawless and insecure place. Um, so, you know, un unless and until um, ways are found to disincentivize 
certain governments, I'm thinking in particular of Russia, but you know China, China too, from, from uh, uh, con continuing in, in, in this behavior, we're, we're going to see more of it. I, I, don't, I don't see that uh, situation um, getting, uh, getting any better. So my sense is that um, you know, the, the situation is, is going to remain untidy, disorderly, um, and uh, unstable uh, for the foreseeable future. I've always thought that it's going to take something fairly cataclysmic to bring uh, some states, well, indeed most states, to their senses um, and re really think seriously uh, about uh, some of the issues that we've been discussing. That event hasn't happened yet. And unless and until it does, I don't foresee any significant change. Camina? In terms of um, progress, uh, do we see progress? Um, I do have to say that this, I mean, prior to the current spate of ransomware, although we were living through it, uh, including during the final week of the open-ended working group and the final week of the GG in, in March and May, respectively. And without China, as well as um, uh, other major players, there would not have been a report. Now, many people can criticize these reports for just being the pieces of paper um, that, uh, that uh, are not backed by action. Um, but they do provide a, a really, really important basis, um, the, the open-ended working group uh, for one, um, whereby all states have, um, have agreed on uh, what constitutes a responsible uh, framework of state behavior. Um, China, including um, as one of the, the major players, um, and the GG report as well brings many of those elements of the of that framework uh, further. And China again was key in in, in bringing that to a successful conclusion. Um, so I think there has been progress, at least at that uh, that that multilateral level, in agreeing on what behavior is not acceptable. Uh, and uh, in terms of what we have to do, what our governments have to do to respond and how we ourselves can hold our governments uh, accountable, depending evidently on the country that we're in. And um, then in the next the next years will be very interesting. I think Linda would probably have some some views on this in terms of um, how how our governments are going to continue uh, discussing and negotiating these issues um, uh, both multilaterally um, and in other fora um, and what this will actually mean given the continuous spate of, uh, of malicious activity, some of it state back, some of it not. Um, uh, as Nigel mentioned, there is a lot of room for collaboration um, uh, at the, the, the cybercrime level. Uh, and um, I think that will hopefully um, uh, increase over the coming period, despite um, uh, the, the, the negotiations or um, the, the work underway within the third committee for 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 a global uh, cybercrime convention. I think there's enough of a framework existing uh, already um, to to facilitate that type of co cooperation. Um, and all states are affected. Uh, it's not just a, a few. Uh, where I think uh, and where I would fundamentally agree with Nigel is that very little can actually improve if there isn't a much more. Uh, structured and serious conversation about the architecture and the and the vulnerabilities in it and why and uh, what role companies um, play in all of this and um, we have uh, a lot of processes um, and a lot of fora where 
um, the roles and responsibilities of the private sector and different categories, evidently, of, of private sector actors are being discussed. But it's not very clear to me that they've, they, they, where that is leading to. Sounds like we're all going to have a lot on our plate, both in the public and the private sectors. Thank you very much, Nigel and Camino, for those comments. It was very enlightening, and uh, we're certainly going to follow this space. Thank you also, Linda, for being with us today, and thank you all for listening. Please like and subscribe on wherever you get this podcast. Give us a review, and we look forward to having you again for our next episode. Bye.